Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello folks, Ian here. Welcome to episode 23 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. So as you know, I quite like occasionally to read out a few uh, reviews of the book or the podcast or both. I really appreciate it that people take the time to, to do this. It's, uh, it's great to get that feedback. Um, so yes, yeah, so we'll start with uh, one from Albert. Uh, five stars. This is on the book. Uh, headline being honest and brought back many memories, good and bad. On put downable, better than on pick upable, I suppose, isn't it? Um, I read this book in two sittings, literally could not put it down. As a retired Met officer who joined around the same time, it brought back so many memories of my time served from the 1980s and 90s when I could actually do my job of dealing with criminals and dealing with victims. It showed me how times changed with officers getting promoted with no life or job experience, but could play the promotion game by using the right buzzwords to the interference of politicians who had no idea or concept of what grassroots officers had to deal with on a daily occurrence. I'm proud to have served and proud of those officers still serving who are trying to serve the public. But sometimes the difficulties from within the station rather than the public. Well worth a read to gain an honest insight. So that's great. Thanks very much for that, Albert, if you're listening. Uh, I've got another one here. Um, five stars, well written and thought provoking. A seriously important book. UK media and politicians should hang their heads in shame. Yeah, and actually you won't get any arguments out of me on that one. And we've got another one here from uh, Harry. Uh, highly recommended, both funny and gritty. A very readable account and damning indictment of the effect of political interference and financial cuts to the policing service. A personal account that recreates the challenges in both a humorous and gritty way. Highly recommended. And there's hardly a day goes by that I don't get either a Facebook message from someone or a text message or WhatsApp or email to the TJF book uh, website. And today I had a lovely one from uh, Joe. Uh, I'll probably save her blushes by adding any more details than that. Um, and she said, uh, Dear Ian, I hope you don't mind me messaging. Um, I saw your book uh, being posted a few weeks ago. I bought it last week and completed it last night, which is a miracle, given I have two children under three to look after and don't get time to do anything these days. I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed it. I find it balanced, informative, hopeful and couldn't disagree with anything you said as you managed to articulate exactly what we've all felt over the last few years. She goes on to describe uh, some of the things that she's done in her in her job and um, and then she said, your stories of the job really made me smile and remind me how much of a wonderful job it is, and I too agree that most people are good. Uh, the job hasn't jaded me at all. As for colleagues, they are some of the best people you'll meet, with the exception of a few. Uh, my husband, who isn't, who isn't a police officer, will enjoy reading it too. I just wanted to say thank you for writing it so eloquently and articulately. It needed to be put to paper. What's happened the last few years, and I applaud you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Joe. It's always lovely to get those sort of messages because it really makes you realise that uh, you're on the right track and it's great that people are obviously, uh, what you're saying is resonating with people. So I thought I'd just cover off a couple of other little bits and bobs before we get into the interview. I uh, had a, a message from a, a serving officer the other day 
who was describing how much um, they enjoyed the book and the podcast, uh, were describing how they work on a child protection team, which, as we all know, is incredibly stressful, uh, difficult, complex work, very high risk, lots of you know, reputational damage for the organisation uh, if, it, if it ever goes wrong. And this officer was describing how the work of child protection teams um, is now becoming so stretched and nobody wants to do it in certain parts of the country. Uh, was describing how um, teams of detectives are all sinking across every major function under un- completely unrealistic workloads and pressure. And unlike when I was a detective, uh, there now seems to be a bit of a culture of dog-eat-dog. Nobody wants to help each other. They just, they've got quite enough of their own stuff on. They just can't see the, the point in helping anybody else, uh, regardless of how much they're sinking uh, and they're actively sort of working against each other. Um, and that's just stress. I think, I think that's the only thing you can really uh, attribute that to is just very high levels of stress, I think. This officer also described a situation where um, probationers are being allowed to join the teams um, without any sort of detective training or background and without even um, an interview or an application process. Uh, It's basically, if you want to come in and do this job, you can, and that's it. Um, And as far as I'm concerned, that is a complete disaster waiting to happen. This is one of those areas of policing. It's a highly specialised area of policing. And as I said, the risks um, to the organisation and to the, to the public of uh, things going wrong are catastrophic. We've, we've seen that time and again. And the idea that uh, potentially uh, very, very serious offences against very young children could be investigated by someone who has no detective training, um, no experience, and hasn't even had any sort of meaningful selection process uh, to allow them to do that job is absolutely unbelievable. But sadly, that's the organisation that, you know, there's many years of cuts to funding, to an increase in demand uh, from every part of uh, the organisation, senior officers who don't push back uh, and don't support their troops. uh, That's what you get, unfortunately. And... um, and I'm still kind of reeling from watching the BBC series, the drama series, Four Lives, which uh, described the activities of the serial killer Stephen Port in Barking and Dagenham. Um, it's just almost incomprehensible. Firstly, I suppose it's incomprehensible how they didn't, you know, someone didn't join the dots in that investigation to see that there is a a theme emerging, and not just a theme emerging of young gay men turning up dead, but also um, the very first one of those was clearly linked to an individual who had given false information to the police and was convicted of uh, perverting the course of justice. So I really can't see how that ever happened. And I suppose the other thing for me would be to say, what happened to the senior officers who were um, in post at that location at that time. So for me, all day long, the person who was the head of crime in Barking and Dagenham, the person who was the local superintendent uh, and the local chief superintendent, I'd really like to know what's happened to them because that was, it is almost incomprehensible that someone in that position of authority didn't see what was going on there and wasn't exercising a lot more professional curiosity as to why nothing was being done. And I suppose my great fear in all of this, everything I've described in my book, everything I've talked about in this podcast, my great fear is that we're going to see more and more and more of these cases uh, arising. What I've just described about untrained, ill-equipped and inexperienced officers being parachuted into investigative teams dealing with some of the most complex and difficult and high-risk areas of policing. It just you know, illustrates that point really, really well. And I saw another uh, interesting programme on television uh, the other night, Panorama, all about Britain's deadly roads. 
um, however, for the first time in 40 years, 40 years, we're now seeing an increase in the number of deaths on our roads in Britain. And the uh, Inspector of Constabulary has made a direct link between an increase in deaths on the road and a reduction in the number of traffic officers nationally, with many forces hardly having any at all. And, um, and that's an interesting one for me, because if you think about how much uh, vehicle safety has improved uh, in car safety with multiple airbags, vastly improved braking, um, all sorts of different uh, means of uh, preventing accidents happening in the first place in terms of the design of the vehicles. And yet we're still seeing an increase in deaths on the road. And for anyone who's, uh, who's read my book, they'll know that you know, I describe in the very first chapter, I describe how the number of murders in England and Wales rose by 35% between 2013 and 2017, and hospital admissions for assault with sharp objects uh, rose by 41% between 2014-2019. So that's a, those years, as you can see, are directly linked to the reduction in resourcing in policing. So you think 35% increase in murders in a four-year period, and in the same way that you know we shouldn't be seeing more people dying on the roads because of improved vehicle safety, nor should we be seeing an increase in the number of murders, particularly because of the improvements in medical care, critical medical care provided by paramedics at the scene and A&E doctors uh, who have learned all sorts of lessons from, sadly, from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq about how to keep people alive. Emergency medical care in the UK has never been better than it is today, and yet we've still seen such a huge increase in murders in the UK and, and I, I believe personally that that is all directly attributable to the cuts to police budgets made under the David Cameron Theresa May governments. Anyway, um, moving on to the interview this week. So this week I'm going to be interviewing Joanne Rice. Now Joanne uh, was a police officer in the Met for 17 years before leaving and joining um, you know, the private sector yet another person to leave policing who really in different circumstances I think uh, we would have been holding on to but again looking at the prospect of doing 40 years rather than 30 years um, she uh, in my view probably quite sensibly made the decision to leave um, but Joanne uh, had a really interesting career for the time that she was there uh, detective and uh, moved into the counter-terrorism world so this is the first time that I've interviewed someone from the counterterrorism world, uh, which is a world that I worked in myself for, for many years, both in London and also in the West Midlands. And uh, it made me realise that it's really, really difficult to interview people who've worked in that world. Um, I was really conscious of not wanting to stray into sensitive, confidential areas, uh, bound as I still am by, by the Official Secrets Act. And, uh, and Joanne will be bound by the same legislation as well. Um, so was that might have uh, been tempting to tell a few war stories in order to make it, um, you know, uh, to bring it all to life. The, the reality is that, unfortunately, we are still bound by the Official Secrets Act until the day we die. So inevitably, uh, you've got to be quite careful about straying into that area. But what we did talk about a lot was, um, you know, what it's like to do that type of work, the impact that it has on you, on your family. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyway, without further ado, we'll get into the interview with Joe. Right, this week, folks, um, I've got the absolute pleasure of speaking to uh, an ex-Metropolitan uh, Police colleague, albeit that she and I didn't work together at the same time, but we did sort of work in similar departments, similar jobs. Uh, Joe Rice. Joe, welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, so listen, Joe, um, I, as I said in previous podcast, two or three podcasts ago, I was really keen to get more women on the podcast because it was too male dominated. And, uh, you know, there's so many um, amazing women in the organisation, not just in London, but all over the country. So I'm determined to get the voice of women because uh, I think they can bring a slightly different perspective to things. So just give us a brief overview as to um, 
when you joined uh, and what made you join the police in the first place? Oh, big question. So I, I joined in 1998, um, uh, August 1998. Um, I had just turned 20. Um, I, I remember at school doing a careers fair type thing, whether they even still do that sort of thing, I've no idea. But it was answer loads of different questions to try to identify what sort of career you'd be suited to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically came out as join the police. um (laughs) this totally genuine totally genuine um I was not particularly academically gifted in the slightest yeah um good at some stuff really rubbish at other stuff um and I just kind of settled on it and didn't really have any burning ambition to do anything else and went yeah go on then I'll do that which is kind of what I tend to do go yeah that looks like a good idea do that so it's Um, it's like a psychometric kind of thing was it that's it that's it um, and I always remember my mum, we'd, we'd go out, I don't know, just like going to a country house or something like that. If there was a sign on the grass that said, don't walk on the grass. I go, no, you can't walk on the grass. There's a sign that says you can't do it. So I was big on rules. So you're, big yeah, on yeah, rule yeah. Always following a rule. <laughs> well, it's funny because Jeannie Brooks, who was on last week, uh, she, she described herself as someone who couldn't just walk past something that was going on and not stick her nose in. So there's clearly nice. a, yeah. there's clearly a kind of a, a golden thread there, isn't there, of the people who join the police? We're kind of like extreme rule. We're not at all rule breakers, are we? Generally, mm. there's always a way. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you didn't have any police in your family, um, um, so it was a kind of a. Was it your intention when you joined to um, you know stay in kind of you, you know? I know everything's changed in the last few years, but was it, was it when you joined, were you thinking, right, I, I'm in this for the long haul kind of thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was a, a yeah, career for life, as they call it. Yeah, I had no intention of, of at the point of joining, of, of doing anything other than seeing out my time. But my, yeah. mind you, at your point of joining, your end date is is not even something that's remotely in your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it's a distant, far-off number um so yeah it was definitely a, a career for life as it was at the time that was the intention yeah brilliant uh yeah it's a bit like when you sign up for your pen for your pension on your sort of day one when you go into Hendon you know and the idea of a pension just seems like such a ridiculous thing doesn't it it's like a pension you know I'm like 20 I was 23 years old so you've joined the job and you go to Hendon yeah uh what was that like how did you find that was that a bit of a shock to the system was God, cast my mind back. It was, if I, you know, if I look back on it now, it was grey, and it was, it could almost have been just like this cold grey castle on the top of a hill. Mm. Just kind of the atmosphere there was just not misery, but it was just cold and grey. But the people <laughs> were wonderful, and you know, yeah. I think we say this throughout the job. Doesn't matter how the job you're doing; it's the people you're doing it with. Um, yeah. And you know, great class. And again, not academically gifted, so I was fairly crap at all exams. Mm-hmm. Failed most of them, really? passed enough to scrape through. Right. Um, but I kind of I had the right attitude and and the want to do well and the practical stuff I was good at. Yeah. Um, did the old practical assessment things um i was good at those but don't ask me to write anything down because i was rubbish at it mm-hmm. uh, but anyway yeah scraped my way through and it, it was all right i mean i enjoy structure yeah. and routine and i loved having a uniform that i had to get ready and present well and yeah, yeah. you know yeah. polishing all your boots did you still so what so sorry what year was that remind me again 98 98 okay so so yeah so um yeah, just about 10 years after me, I suppose. And so you're still doing all the kind of marching around and all of yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, when did you get posted then um, on leaving training school? 99, January 99. Yeah. And where did, where did you go? West End Central. Right. Okay. So for those listening who don't really understand, um, when you're at training school in the Met um, in those days, you would you would be given a number of choices, wouldn't you? You'd say first choice, yeah. second choice, yeah. third choice or whatever. Um, was that your first choice? It was, and I could not tell you what my other choices were. I have got no idea. Can't right. remember. 
Um, but fortunately, yeah, I got my first choice. So you were obviously happy with that. So I didn't get yeah, either yeah. my I didn't get either my first, second, or third choice. I got so it was completely random. So um so yeah, so West End Central, um central London, there's different there's different I describe London from a policing point of view as being a bit like an onion, isn't it? So you've got these different layers. Um and right in the center, you've got places like West End Central and um charing charing cross and places like that haven't you belgravia and each one of those is quite different isn't it so you've got you've got sort of uh those areas that are kind of you'd end up with with just an awful lot of tourists and ceremonial duties and all of that kind of stuff and then but yet but i think west end central was one of those places where you got kind of everything didn't you and you got an awful lot of busy nightlife didn't you in that in that sort of area yeah, well, West End Central was one square mile, our ground, one mm-hmm. square mile. Um, and it covered basically Mayfair and Soho. And down right. the centre of that was Regent Street. And that was pretty much your ground. And right. you couldn't have had two polar opposite mm-hmm. areas, demographics, anything, just polar opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great fun. Yeah. It was not proper policing by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. We had a minimal residential population, so I never dealt with one domestic in my entire service. Um, Yet those in proper police stations, you know, would have dealt with them constantly every day, you know, in and out, just normal bread and butter work. Um, But yeah, it was was tourists, it was shops, it was um, public order type stuff. If we had the demonstrations or if you think about New Year's Eve at Piccadilly Circus, um it yeah it was so you probably got a lot at, of uh, I mean that's the thing that's the fascinating thing about policing isn't it, it, it where you first go to work or, or where you go to work at any stage of your career is very much the nature of the work is very much determined by the geography that you get posted to you know so yes. if you go to somewhere with a very uh, you know, d- residential community, then you're going to get a lot of domestics, aren't you? A lot of, uh, yeah. a lot of domestic abuse. You're going to get a lot of, um, y- you know, sort of residential burglary and that kind of property crime and everything. And um, But I would imagine you're going to be doing... So I suppose you, you're going to get a lot of travelling criminals come into West, West End Central to, mm-hmm. prey, to prey on the tourists, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or your, your handbag thieves and... Bicycle thieves, you get loads of bicycle thefts, motor, uh, moped thefts, as it was. I don't know if that's a big thing anymore. Um, mm. But yeah, you sort of your transient community, be that yeah. the tourists or the or the baddies. Which, from an investigative point of view, is quite challenging, isn't it? Because um, mm. when you work in a particular area where your most of your local criminals are are committing offences, kind of on their doorstep, um, yeah. so, you, so you kind of get to know who's doing what. Um, if, if there's been a burglary using a particular MO, so it's modus operandi, um, then you've got a pretty good idea who probably did it. Whereas yeah. when you get offending in somewhere like Western Central, you've probably got no clue half the time, have you? Yeah, it's a fair assessment. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just trying to sort of think back. And yeah, you'd have your nightclub um, GBHs. Right. Where it's all gone a bit bent by two o'clock in the morning and everyone's had a little bit too much fun. Yeah. Um, and yeah, your victims are far flung, your suspects are far flung, as are your witnesses. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that was a challenge in itself. Um, think about it, you used to get the non-residential burglaries a lot over in Mayfair, yeah, because of a weekend, Mayfair was dead. Um, mm. all the sort of the, the fancy office workers and the nice shops and whatnot along Bond Street, there's there's only a certain sort of period of time when there was any activity there so you, it yeah. used to be quite susceptible to the non-residential burglaries and that mm. quite often was the local um vagrants yeah and yeah, street yeah. life that would yeah. take advantage of that because they're there all the time and of course they observe when the busy times are when yeah, they're not yeah, yeah. and i imagine uh, if you've got offenses being committed of any sort you're going to have a very strong likelihood that either victims or witnesses are going to be um tourists who are non non-resident in the uk so they're going yeah, to sometimes. bugger off back to wherever they're from, Italy, Spain, whatever, and mm-hmm. then trying to track them down and get statements of them or get them to come to court or anything like that is probably going to be quite challenging, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so West End Central. Um, so you did a bit of time in uniform there, uh, obviously, like everybody. And uh, then I believe you trained to be a detective. Is that right? Um, yeah, so I, from uniform, I went on to the local crime squad. 
um, and was keen to do the sort of detective route, um, mm -hmm. principally so that I could do the detective roles. Yeah, so yeah. those squads, more the sort of, I think the flying squad I had up in my mind as the, you know, the place where I want to go, want to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I did my DC's exams um, and then wound up in the main office at Western Central sort of learning the foundation of, of being a DC. Yeah. And how did you find um, the culture at that time? Because um, police culture gets a lot of um, bad press, doesn't it? Uh, mm. And laterally, there's been this sort of suggestion that um, it's quite a misogynistic culture. Did you find uh, any evidence of that? Any sort of sexism, misogyny in the job? No. Really? Genuinely, no. And I've had these conversations many times. <laughs> The thing is, I'm not a backwards and coming forwards person. If someone mm. irritates me in that setting, where yeah. I am now in a corporate setting, it's different. You operate differently. But back mm. then, if someone irritates me, you pipe up and say something and tell yeah. them to wind their neck in. It's quite mm. straightforward. Um, I was never, ever someone to, to suddenly fall down and say, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. Not at all. So that perhaps affects my perception of that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I wasn't treated differently mm. um, uh, in a negative way at all, um, yeah. nor did I see any of it genuinely. And, you know, this, that's years ago. Yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I didn't see any of that myself, but then I'm a man, aren't I? And uh, my perceptions are going to be different. And, and sometimes behaviours can be quite subtle, can't they? But, you know, mm. I've got to be very careful in this podcast that I don't sort of you know, uh, take too strong a position on the whole sexism thing because mm. a because I'm a man, and then it comes across as what's that expression? Mansplaining, doesn't it? You yeah. Know? Um, so, but but no, it's it's re I suppose it's reassuring to hear from you that that's not something that you experienced. I suppose. Um, and in terms of uh, trainee detectives or actual detectives at that time, um, were there many women in the office? Yeah. Um, it probably wasn't 50-50, but then the makeup of the job at the time wasn't 50-50. Um, mm. You know, but yeah, there were on, if I think about each of the pods that I worked on, there were women mm. on them. Mm. Yeah. I, I, genuinely, I didn't see it as a thing, a thing in any way. Right. Um, no, not at all. And which okay. is why the, the subject can frustrate the crap out of me these yeah. days. You think, can you just pull yourself together, please? Yeah, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Again, on that one, you know, I hear certain individuals um, being quite um, vocal about their sense of being discriminated against for one reason or another. And I always, I always say, when people say to me, you know, privately, what do you make of that? I'll say, well, I'm not going to completely dismiss it because that would be the wrong thing to do. But what I would say to people is have a look and see if they've got an axe to grind somewhere, you know, were they being performance managed? Were they, uh, you know, did they have a grievance against the job? Did they, you know, is there a backstory here that might, you know, at least partly explain some of that kind of stuff? But um, anyway, moving on. Um, I've just Sorry, I've just thought on. of something on that, actually, you know. When I first rocked up in uniform, so I was 20 years old, mm. literally did not have a clue about life at all. Mm. Um and I do remember that, um, so there was the, the phrase plonk, wasn't there, person with mm. little or no knowledge. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was never, I, it wasn't commonly used, actually. I was just aware of it. Mm. Um, and I do remember having the impression that not very much was expected of me in terms of she's not going to make much of a difference. She won't be up to much. She won't do, she won't be very good. Mm. Whether that was because I was a she, or just mm. because I was a brand new probationer, I've no idea. But mm. I do remember thinking, okay, I'll just work hard. But I won't just work hard. I'll work that a little bit more mm. and I'll show you. Yeah, yeah. Just wait and see. Yeah. I, I remember having that approach. Yeah. And certainly, you know, a lot of the women that I worked with over the years, both in the Met uh, and at various places in the Met, as well as then in the West Midlands, um, you know, if, if you give them any shit, they're the sort of people who would, um, be very, very capable of dishing it back, uh, you know, times two, 
Um, mm-hmm. the, the, we're not talking about people who are generally shrinking violets here, are we? Mm. Um, you know, they're feisty, they're strong, feisty women, you know, so anyway, yeah, yeah. so um, so so you did a bit of time there. And um, what where did you go after that then? Um, so from the CID at Western Central, I went on a it was a bit of a, a scheme where they were trying to get young DCs um, exposure to um the specialist crime directorate scd as it was then Mm -hmm. so murder squads flying squad that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so i went to um the murder squad south for i did just over a year Mm -hmm. um for some exposure to that kind of major crime investigation Mm -hmm. um that was good fun i earned an obscene amount of overtime but Mm -hmm. i also worked an obscene amount of hours um and then so yeah did that for just over a year then came back to western central as was the the arrangement right okay and then i believe you ended up moving um into the same sort of area that i spent a lot of time in the sort of counterterrorism world um when did that happen i think that was about 2010 thereabouts okay um applied to uh the sort of the, the covert policing world right um and that's where i saw out my service from there mm-hmm so, so you and I know quite a few people, don't we, um, uh, in common, uh, who, who kind of, you know, were working in that area, and, and some of them probably still are, I suppose. Uh, and we've already said before we had the, the, um, the, you know, the conversation today that you know, we're not going to be disclosing any confidential information or confidential methodologies or anything like that, um, you know, for, for very good reasons. But um, did you get involved in some interesting jobs in that side of things? <laughs> one or two um <laughs> do, do you know what since I've always said since having left I look back on my time in the job with nothing but brilliant memories mm-hmm. the experiences I have had and being paid to have them mm-hmm. was just fantastic and you'll never get you just don't get that exposure to the different people the different agencies the different places that you go mm-hmm. um Honestly, it's like I look back and think, shit, I did do that. I was there. I was part of that. Um, yeah, very yeah, great, interesting, uh, eye-opening uh, time. Privilege, isn't it? And mm. I think um, you know, you, you, you having worked in that world uh, as I have, um, I, I don't think the public even for a moment fully understand the scale of some of these jobs. You know, no. when you're when you're working on some of the big counterterrorism jobs, um, mm. they really uh, there's an awful lot of people. Uh, involved in them from all sorts of different disciplines uh, and frequently all over the country so I remember Mm -hmm. when you know when I was um, a DI running the uh, the operations room in in in, um, the Midlands you know for the national a lot of the national jobs which were sort of kind of based in in Birmingham or around the Midlands you know we were obviously running um, assets covert assets all over the UK um, from from there and yeah it's logistically uh, it's impressive isn't it yeah do you know I think at the time it's just work it's I think you can only well for me I only have these these memories and these views looking back on it because at the time you're just you're just a small cog in a massive wheel um, mm-hmm. just doing your bit mm-hmm. um but yeah they are huge operations um mm-hmm. and, and almost you know it's in a way it's almost a shame that we can't share the full details of them it's yeah. right and proper that we don't yeah um but it's, it's almost a shame because it is so incredibly interesting, well, certainly to the likes of you and I, um, how these things actually work. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? The Official Secrets Act is there for a very good reason. And, um, yeah, but like you, uh, it says, yeah, it can be frustrating, particularly when you read some of the um, headlines that are very sort of misleading, you know. So I find, I find, the, I find some of the coverage of the Manchester Arena bombing hard to um listen to and watch actually some of the criticism of emergency Mm -hmm. services and Mm -hmm. you know and you you think to yourself gosh we 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 kind of exercise we we kind of test and exercise for these scenarios so frequently but the bottom line is if someone is going to wander into a venue with a rucksack packed full of explosives and detonate uh, themselves it's really, um, it's so difficult in an open democratic society to protect um, large numbers of people uh, in those kind of crowded venues because they're happening everywhere, aren't they? All up and down the country. And, 
it's it's not difficult is it to to get you know to get into that position with a with an explosive device so so yes i find it very very hard i I thought some of the commentary particularly around um the ambulance service and um because because we've worked with all of those people for years haven't we and we know how dedicated they are and um so yeah it's another example of i think the media being very quick to judge isn't it yeah but then i don't I, i find i have to sort of let it wash over me a bit a lot most of the time because mm. the media are there selling stories they're not there to recreate documentaries in print that's not what they're there for um they're not they're serving their own purpose um to sell newspapers ultimately mm-hmm. so i think I, i kind of have to let a bit, uh, let a lot of it wash over Mm. I think you you don't know the full detail you mm. can't know the full mm. detail and mm. that's just how it is mm-hmm. um and and yeah to your point about you know Ma- Manchester Arena specifically um I can't remember the ins outs of that particular suspect but if they don't talk about it somewhere mm. if they aren't in association with people that we don't know about mm. and I say that in a very vague general sense mm-hmm. we're never going to know you know we we don't have psychic abilities we don't have psychic yeah. powers yeah, yeah and the other point to make is that where well, i've seen it come out in the press well they knew about him mi5 knew about him you get that kind of they knew they knew well they know about hundreds thousands, and hundreds thousands, yeah. of people mm. and to know in inverted commas about someone yeah, yeah, yeah. is really neither here nor there yeah, it doesn't mean yeah. that there's any sort of work around yeah. them in terms of monitoring their movements or communications mm. or anything mm. and but it's all those finer details as to how the job works in that space yeah. that people can't know about yeah. but if they did it would explain it well people don't really understand the members of the public don't understand and i think the, the media are very mischievous sometimes in the way that they um describe this situation because if we were to be deploying surveillance teams 24/7 against hundreds of thousands of people across the country we would be very quickly accused of uh, of acting like a you know a, a, mm. a sort of a totalitarian oppressive mm. regime wouldn't we um so there's the I don't have re- a problem with that yeah <laughs> well you know there's a but the sheer resources that that would require yeah, it's just it, not possible people don't no. understand no. the the number of resources that you need just no. to follow one person around no. you know never yeah. mind uh, hundreds of people so mm-hmm. yeah So um so yeah so those those jobs they're great aren't they but um I think p- part of the reason why I got a bit uh on you know I decided to leave the counterterrorism world was I find that the the gaps between those jobs could be quite long sometimes and I and I just got bored frankly um did you find that Yeah I mean the job itself is truly fantastic Mm. um it you know when you're actually on an operation and it mm. is you know it is moving mm. um it's fantastic it's great mm. fun once you know what you're doing uh, mm. and you're comfortable with what you're doing and your team and you know fantastic teams uh two I worked with um that I was on you, you know amazing and it's mm. such good fun um mm. actually doing the job but the very nature of it particularly counterterrorism is that you're not always moving every day all day mm. Yeah, um yeah. and that's the nature of it is you just sit and wait and it's the sitting mm. and waiting which uh, you can do for a period of time and and actually boredom management i think is an actual skill uh, okay. and should be on CVs um mm. but yeah there there does come a time when you think i can't i'm just i can't do this anymore yeah. i'm just festering in the arse mm. end of london mm. surrounded by things i don't want to look at yeah. um and yeah. in a place i don't want to be Yeah, um, and I'm just sat looking at the inside of a car, and I'm over it. Yeah, I mean they say that um, I'm probably going to get the statistics wrong here when I say this, but they say they say that you know war is 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean certainly when I was on a surveillance team, I, I don't think I think it was a lot more than 1%, but you know there was an awful lot. There is an awful lot of hanging around, isn't there? There's an awful lot of sitting about waiting for yeah. something to happen. Yeah, um, which as you say, it can be incredibly. So you can go from this very strange situation of of being absolutely bored out of your mind to to absolute frantic activity mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. very very quickly. 
and um and it's great and it's great fun and it's a massive adrenaline buzz but um so yeah so so how long did you do all that for i did um eight years eight years gosh well that's a fair play to you because that's i mean you must have had to make some serious compromises to your social life during that time did you um not knowingly um but you know job came first um mm. not i don't know not through any kind of i don't know it's a hard way to describe it but it came first and that was fine i mm. loved it work mm. came first what's that we're off on a job tomorrow quit it's sunday what we're going somewhere far afield on monday yeah mm. no worries i'm going to get home make sure my bags are packed and my car squared away it was mm. great i loved mm. it and it was fine but yeah mm. of course the 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 knock-on effect of that is no I won't be here and I won't be there and no I can't go to that party and I can't do that arrangement or gathering or whatever but I Mm. I was happy with that you know it's funny I was I was I was having this conversation with a mate of mine the other day and he's an RAF he's an RAF pilot and he's now doing a a slightly more sort of um regular nine to five kind of job and he was saying that you know how, how much he was missing the kind of operational stuff you know being deployed abroad and um all of the interesting work and the excitement of it all but it obviously comes at a massive cost and and i said to him you know what well, it's exactly the same when i was doing you know working on surveillance teams and things like that because you, you you could not plan your life at all Mm-mm. you had Mm-mm. no you had literally no idea what you're going to be doing from one day to the next and, and very often you know you would those plans would change three or four times inside uh, a four or five hour period you know where you'd think right I'm going to be off tomorrow I go yeah this is what I'm going to do I'm going to sort the shopping out I'm going to do this blah 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 and I'd be like no 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 you know cancel jobs come in and then that would get cancelled again and then you'd think you were off again and then you would be <laughs> be like oh for, yeah oh for fuck's sake please mm. you know mm. it's very hard isn't it and I think it's very it's particularly hard on on people who've got young kids or who've got partners who have got a busy professional life or whatever. And, you know, you can see why there's an awful lot of relationship breakdowns, can't you? Oh God. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the time I only really had to care about myself. It was amazing. Mm. Um, But yeah, those, I mean, I was, there was one female on my last team and the rest was all guys and, you know, they were all with partners, wives and whatnot. And those people left at home running the home and kids or whatever. I mean, they deserved a medal to mm. a, almost allow, if you will, for want of a better word, their other halves to just run whatever schedule they were running mm. and the person at home would just keep the home running. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that, that takes a lot. That yeah, does take and, a I, lot. and I realised looking back on that period of my life, um, you know, I was probably quite selfish, actually, um, you know, because you get, you get wrapped up in the excitement of it all. And, mm. and, and mm. It's, it's very easy, isn't it, to kind of... Your, your get out of jail free card is always, well, this is all about national security, isn't it? This is, really, yeah. this is really important. And whatever yeah, I'm yeah. doing will always be more important than anything else that's going on. But actually, yeah. actually, I think that's wrong. I think, um, you know, because the, the job will chew people up and spit them out. And, um, you know, no one's indispensable, are they? No, but do you know what? That those sorts of jobs need those sorts of people mm. that will say what you need me yeah I'm there no problem mm. you've got to have those sorts of people yeah. um and, and I don't think there's anyone to blame for it I you know not the job the you know the way the home office runs it all or uh, it, it it just needs those sorts of people mm. uh, and it was that sort of department where you apply to go you don't get sent there you mm. apply to go and if if you want to be part of that world Mm. um and almost submit if you like to what it requires yeah then you go and do it yeah um but you and you've got you to have those it, people but you can't do it forever can you i don't i mean i saw people who no, did, it for, no. did it for too long and and they get burnt out and mm. their their private life is a, is a disaster yeah. and um and they're on yeah. their third they're on their third divorce or whatever yeah. you know it's yeah, not yeah. it's not good is it it's not but if you want early late and nights, go back to team. <laughs> <laughs> so there came a point in time when you decided to leave the job. Mm. Um, so what was your what was your thinking around that then, Joe? So I was um, 
I was coming up for, so I, I left at just after 17 years service, 17 and a half. Um, and the thought process went on for about two years um, of I'm festering in a car. As I said earlier, I'm in the shittest part of London. I do not want to be in. I know what time I start generally. I've got no idea what time I finish. Mm. I don't know where I'm going to be. I'm driving 200 miles, for example, a day. Um, and I am hanging out knackered. I was knackered, mm. you know, and part of me slightly cringes at saying that because there's people that do it an awful lot longer than I did. Mm. Um, but for me personally, I was knackered. Mm. Um, getting up at 4.30, morning after morning after morning, I yeah. thought I'm literally going to wake up and have a heart set one day. I can't keep doing this. Yeah. Um, and I was getting on for mid-late 30s, mid, 30s by then. Um, and I just had a sense of, and, and actually it was I, I was, sharing a flat with a friend and she just said joe you're just wasting away in the car you're wasting away in a car you can do so much more and you do within the job you know whilst we were very accomplished in terms of skill set and ability in the job specific to the job you get very brainwashed that you couldn't do anything else mm. well i'm not qualified to do anything else you know mm. i've said it other people i've heard here heard say it and she would say you can do more you're capable of more Mm. um not to, to to denigrate what we were doing because it was a very important job but I just had a sense that I needed to do something else get out of the car mm -hmm. um and and also that the other thing that was playing into it was this culture of counting down your years of service mm -hmm. so at that time it was do your 30 years um and it everyone would be whinging I can't stand whinging if you're not going to do something about it number yeah. one so that was driving me crackers. Um, and this culture of counting down, how long have you got left? How long have you got left? Mm. And I had this real sense of, I don't want to count down to when I'm 50. Why yeah. do I want to race towards that number? And presumably, um, presumably you were caught by the new, by the changes in the pension regulations. Yes. Was that, was that, so that, was that a factor in your thinking then? Kind of, kind of. Because um, obviously rather than, I mean, going back to your point, and I know what you're saying about people counting down, you know, and it is annoying, isn't it? When you hit people who are just like, oh, how many have you left to do before you're 30? But then they, they changed the goalposts, didn't, <coughs> excuse me, didn't they? And they, they said, um, what is it now people have to do? For, is it 40 years now? 40, oh my God. So, so really you properly had the rug pulled from under your feet, didn't you? People at your stage of service? Oh, mega. Yeah, yeah. Um... So I would have had to do an additional 10 years and the thought of still being on a surveillance <laughs> team, age 60, Christ alive. <laughs> Good luck if I was that. knackered at like 37, I think, oh no. Um, so yeah, I just, all of those things sort of taken together, I just thought, mm, no, I need yeah. a different way of life, please. Right. So, so, uh, um, so what, were think, what were your thoughts about what, what you know, uh, did you have a hankering to do anything in particular? Nope, not in the slightest. I didn't have a clue what I could do. Um, not a clue. Uh, I Fortunately, my, my first job when I got out of the job was a sales role for a, a security company. Nothing right. to write home about at all. Um, mm. It came about by a friend of a friend. Yeah. Um, so it's a classic, not what you know, it's who you know. Um, and... It, <laughs> the learning curve coming out of the job into a civilian role if you mm -hmm. will was mind-blowingly steep it was horrendous <laughs> I, I yeah i can't lie it was the most stressful time of my life because oh. i'd literally grown up in the job i'd grown yeah, up you know yeah, from yeah, 20. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was everything i knew the way of communicating the way of being acting everything was job and now I was out of that. And the real killer was that no one else operates like that apart yeah. from job people. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And Christ alive, it was hard. It was horrendous. So was it quite a big company that you were working for initially or was it quite a small one? No, relatively small company. Right. I mean, I was I was in London most of the time doing networking, networking type stuff, as you can imagine, with sales. Mm. Um, and I was kind of operating in a similar-ish area in so much as I'd be speaking to heads of security who were off an ex-job and there yeah, was yeah. that kind of connection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, sales was not for me at all. But, right. you know, it, it taught, it, it gave me that stepping stone 
couple of years, year, mm-hmm. two years, yeah. to civilianize and soften. Right. Um, and that soften. was very important. <laughs> so you find, oh, you yeah. Find, yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? It can be quite, policing can be quite brutal, isn't it? And um, uh, yeah, the corporate world's a lot. I mean, there are some pretty feisty people. It's interesting because when I left the police and, and went into private sector as a sort of consultant advisor, you know, I was working with a lot of different companies and, um, you know, they can be pretty brutal as well. You know, there's some pretty um, hard nosed people in the private sector as well. Um, mm. But, but certainly the way of um, yeah, the culture and the organization was, is very different, isn't it? So, um, so you stuck that, you did that for a couple of years. I believe you dipped your toe in the world of the media for a while. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, quite possibly my most random career move to date, um, <laughs> or just brief, brief toe dipping. Um, yeah, so uh, I'd seen something come up on LinkedIn that said, "Do you want to be a career, uh, a TV detective?" Right. And coming out of the world I had been in, which yeah. is deny everything, you've got nothing to do with anything to do with the police whatsoever. No, nothing to do with me. Yeah. Um, I thought that sounds like fun. Sod right. it. So uh, yeah, essentially. I ended up um, filming a TV show called The Heist, um, which was for Sky. Um, and I was a TV detective investigating a bank robbery. So so was this kind of One like of- a, a, a kind of, um, were you pretending to be a different character or were you like saying, I am a, I'm a previous detective and my role now is to solve this crime and I will sort of explain my thinking about what needs to be done yeah, so it was a, a, a spoof uh, bank robbery. Right. But the, the contestants, so the ordinary civilians from this town called Annick in Northumberland that had been yep. drafted together, got a gang together and they robbed a bank. Right. Um, and we, the police side, were all ex-job, or there was a couple oh. of still serving, I think, um, run by Sue Hill, who was the governor, running the operation, right. running the investigation. Um, we would then investigate the, th- the the crime and the idea was to catch all of those that had done it yeah. if they managed to evade capture within a certain working period mm-hmm. they got to keep their um portion of the loot that they'd stolen from the robbery all which right. was over 100 grand all right, a okay. piece a piece so it was a game show with a difference Basically, I've got to say, it was so well run. We gen- so many people say, oh, you must have known, you must have known, they must have fed you information. They absolutely didn't. It was so, the integrity was second to none. I was really impressed with it, I have to say. But filming a TV show was great fun. I can was recommend it? it to anyone that gets the opportunity. Um, yeah, the production company, it's very interesting, incredibly right. interesting. Yeah, seeing behind the um, scenes of all, how it all yeah. works. So did that, yeah, yeah. did that not, um, was that just a one-off then? Um, for, for Heist, they didn't make another series of that. Right. Um, and there was talk. Uh, so some of the guys from Heist did um, Hunted on Channel 4, the oh, series yeah. that's coming out soon. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't able to do it, um, but that may come up again, I don't know. So I've got a bit of an issue with that programme, Hunted, uh, on the basis that I think it discloses too much um, sensitive methodology, um, mm. which is the only people that really helps are the baddies. And, mm. uh, and I think, um, although saying that, I'm going to challenge myself on that a little bit. So much of this methodology is being now being kind of made available via the programmes like Hunted and various kind of books that people write and and the mm. military the military have got that same issue haven't they where you've got mm-hmm. x x special forces coming out and sort of doing these books and which give away probably arguably too much don't they but it doesn't stop the baddies from making mistakes they still make mistakes don't they mm-hmm. and and even though they know that all of the kind of you know trickery that law enforcement and intelligence agencies have at their disposal these days, they still make some pretty basic errors. I used to um, do an awful lot of the authorities, uh, various, you know, complex investigations when I was a superintendent before leaving. And it really amazed me how bad some of these people are still at covering their tracks. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, 
So yeah, so I don't know. But do you think do you think too much is given away in these things now? With my strict police hat on, yeah. No one needs to know anything. Mm. The end. <laughs> However, yeah. mm. uh, for people making TV shows, they've got to make a TV show that people want to watch. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yes, a lot is disclosed, but there's a lot that isn't disclosed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally, I like to think we have the intelligence over them. Um, you know, certainly within mm. the, the CT world, we've been doing this for a long time an awful long time and we're pretty good at it um so i i don't know there's a balance to be struck um Mm. but i would say less disclosure is better so do you um do you miss do you miss policing i miss actually doing my old job i do miss it um on the surveillance team um i miss my old team dreadfully Mm. um the fun and i say fun because it was fun. We were working mm. bastard hard, yeah, but yeah. it was fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I miss that, you know, and blasting around in fast cars and, and all of the other stuff that mm. we did and the different people we worked with and the places that we got to go. And I appear to be in a helicopter now. Okay, this is quite cool. Um, <laughs> I'm just Joe from South London and I'm in a heli. Um, yeah, I miss all of that. But do you know what? I don't miss getting up at half past four. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm in a different that makes me sound really old, but I'm in a different mm. stage of life now and I've got yeah. a really nice life now. Yeah. And I, I've I've done the fun bit. I've done the fun bit. It's knuckle down and earn money now. Yeah. No, I so. I uh I totally agree. And and you know, going back to that conversation I'd have with my friend who was a pilot, you know, um I, I said to him, I would love it. I'd love to be able to do uh, a month holiday on a surveillance team or something. I'd like to, <laughs> yeah. Kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like to come back and just do it for like a month. Uh, well, just to kind of like enjoy the yeah. fun and the excitement and brush up on the skills and all of that kind of stuff. But no, I wouldn't want to do it all the time. Definitely not. Well, you know, strangely enough, when we filmed Heist, um, where I did run a surveillance job. Right. We had to follow some subjects down to Newcastle and take them in a restaurant and get people in the restaurant and, and whatnot and all the, the classic stuff. And I've, I can't lie, it was flipping amazing. Like, mm-hmm. I get to do it again, obviously mm. in a different fashion. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, to be able to do that sort of one last time was... Yeah, well, one, was of really a, one, of my, one of my bright ideas, and believe me, Joe, I've had a lot over the years, you know, since leaving the job, you have these kind of like, oh, maybe we should do this, maybe we should do that. And one of my bright ideas was to run kind of um, corporate training day stroke leadership stroke, just having a bit of fun, but using a surveillance scenario as the kind of teaching, give people a really, really like on day one, give them a really basic introduction to it, mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. really basic and, and take them out and get them doing, you know, foot follows and things like that. Uh, yes. And then, and then day two, actually having a scenario, you know, where you'd have a couple of stooges out being the baddies, and they'd have to kind of gather as much information as they possibly could. And I think I people, love it. Well, I think people would love. I think people would love it. But when you actually think that through, the logistics of doing it are quite uh, extreme. Mm. You know, there's a lot of organisation and logistics to running something like that. And and frankly, I'm not sure I could be asked. No, that's terrible. No, and, and do you know what? In all seriousness, that plays to the fact that being surveillance trained and running a surveillance operation is an incredibly complex and difficult thing to do. It's incredibly difficult. So, you know, you just thinking about recreating it for, for fun purposes. Yeah. Um, not for well, I think people, would, I think people would love it. I think people would love it. But, oh, yeah. you could James Bond it up, couldn't you? You could market <laughs> it in all sorts of ways. The corporates would bloody love it. Um, oh, we're yeah. going to be a spy for a day. It'd be amazing. Oh, never say never. Never say never. So, what are you doing mm. now? Then you're working for a different company. I take it. Yeah. So I work for um, AXA UK. Um, so uh, an insurance, a uh, general insurance company, right. um, who do have a global footprint. But I work. I'm my scope is UK. Um, I'm in financial crime compliance. Um, another role that came about via a friend. So um, what does that? What does that actually mean then? So it's. So uh, the word compliance is key in all of this. So um, it's ensuring that the company operates a 
a compliant financial crime framework within the UK. Right. So that's looking at things like sanctions, mm-hmm. um, uh, anti-bribery and corruption, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing. Right. Now there is there is law and regulation that all companies must follow in mm-hmm. respect of those topics um, and be compliant with. Right. Um, so that's you know it's it's a very quick couple of sentences. So you're to kind say, of their but... in one of their internal watchdogs, so to speak. Yeah, kind of, kind of, yeah, kind of what compliance is, um, but ensuring that everything that we have in place to prevent breaches of sanctions or AML, uh, anti-money laundering or bribery legislation or regulation is ensuring that everything is in place to make sure mm. those breaches don't happen. Yeah. So you're kind of staying in a similar kind of <laughs> area, aren't you, really? Following the rules and make sure others follow the rules. <laughs> That's right. Nothing's changed. Keep off the grass. Apps keep off the grass. There's a sign there that said you can't do it, therefore don't do it. <laughs> Listen, Joe, this has been really fascinating. I think we're on, on about an hour now, so uh, probably look to, to wind it up. But uh, you've been an absolute star. And, uh, yeah, I mean, 17 years. I mean, fair play to you. That was, that you give it a good go, didn't you? Um, but I think this is the thing, isn't it? And I talk about this in my book about we've had so many really great people leave the police in the last sort of 10 years um, because of the change of terms and conditions of employment uh, mm. as well as other things. And, but um, yeah, so I, I just think it's very sad. Well, what are your thoughts just before we finish? What are your thoughts about policing generally what's been going on laterally, you know, all this sort of negative publicity, the, Dreadful stuff going on around, you know, Wayne Cousins, Sarah Everard, the kind of Clapham Vigil, all of this kind of stuff. Where, where, what do you think? What do you think is going on in UK policing at the moment? Oh, my God. Could you just ask me a bigger question? <laughs> um, uh, it, it is mind blowing. Mm. Uh, I know is I could not do it now. Mm. The, the people that are. Um, you know, be that uniform or otherwise, I I just don't know how they could do it now. And I've got friends, a, a friend who's very young in service um, in South London, and I just think, mate, hats off to you for 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 doing it. I ju- I just don't think I could operate in in the arena that it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, as for Wayne Cousins, Christ alive! I, I, I how the hell mm-hmm. he he found himself himself still serving after all of the apparent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Red flags there were around mm. him. I mean, mm. uh, and it, it saddens me that it appears to have got to a point where if a male police officer stops a female, she can go on an app to verify his identity. Mm. Um, I, it, yeah. And guys have to work <laughs> under this all because of one absolute lunatic. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it blows my mind that how go, it is at the moment. So I, going to going to the 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 name of my book do you think the job's fucked (laughs) (laughs) no of course it's not (laughs) that's been said since like 1805 or something yeah um it's the job's fucked by whoever it is that's it's thought to be fucked by whoever it is that's saying it at the time and Mm. i think generation after generation after generation will say the same thing you know, it's 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 driven by the political landscape. It's driven by so many different things, mm. um, changes in policy. Ugh, I don't. Do you know what? It's not because the people mm. that are in it are still doing the right thing for the right reason, um, yeah. and so for that reason, it's yeah. not fun. And that's what I tend to think as well. I said that you know, but a bit of a spoiler alert. If you haven't read my book, that's kind of the conclusion I came to in the, the final chapter of the book. Really. Was, yeah, I do. I do think it's in a real desperate, desperate state. But I think you're absolutely right. There's enough people. There's enough good people still there, and hopefully, mm. there always will be. Um, mm. That that you know, they will be there for the right reasons, doing the right thing. So yeah, yeah. Listen, thanks ever so much, Joe. Really appreciate. You know, you've got a busy job and uh, you know, busy life and everything. So thanks ever so much for taking time out to chat to me. Uh, it's been you've been you've been brilliant and uh, hopefully we'll catch up some point maybe in London I can buy you a beer to say thank you no problem at all it's been my pleasure take care all the best cheers Ian bye 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 bye
Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in 